Well, good morning. And welcome to our final week in this Reconstructing Jesus series. It's Q&A Sunday. You've joined us for Q&A Sunday. That's exciting. My name's Matt. If I've met you before, it's good to see you either here or in one of our communities across Ontario or online. And I serve as our interim senior director, and I'm going to be moderating our panel discussion today. We've got our teaching team here, Jimmy and Carmen and Quincy, some familiar faces. And it's interesting, isn't it? This isn't just a series that's coming out of nowhere. There's context to this idea of reconstructing. Some have called the era that we're in the great deconstruction. Whether it's decades old or maybe even not that long, the point is there's something happening in our cultural moment, both in the kingdom and the church and outside of that, where we're questioning things, we're scrutinizing things, we're shining lights on things, maybe God's doing the same thing. That can create an impulse in us of fear and negativity, but the truth is if we look throughout the history of Christianity, good things happen when God shakes things up. Good things happen through the process of questioning if we keep Jesus at the center. Transformation, reformation happens in our movement, in the history of our movement, when we do that and we keep Jesus at the center of those questions. So we don't leave the pieces on the floor, we reconstruct them around something. And we believe we reconstruct them around and about and through and in and of Jesus. So that's the context for what this has been about. And asking questions is a valuable part of our tradition. It's a valuable part of who we are as a church and it grows us through the process of refinement as we get to know more and become more like Jesus together. So let's dive right in without further ado. So we've got a few questions that we've taken from you and we've summarized some of them. We've, we've picked out some themes that we're gonna to address today. We're gonna to get through as many as we can and you can always shoot more questions to ask at themeetinghouse.com if you wanna follow up with us. So let's dive in. I think we've got a question to start about the temple, Carmen, we'll start with where we kind of ended last week, talking a little bit about the temple. Take us back there. Talk more about why Jesus is apparently being angry in the temple. What's he pushing against? How does this apply for us today? And then also, this is a, this is a great question that comes up often. Doesn't this give permission for righteous anger in some cases? Yeah, totally. So this comes out of last week's teaching, and we didn't actually land here. Uh, you can find this, this uh, account in the Gospels. I asked you to look at Luke 19 in your own time. So if you want to turn uh, kind of near the end of Luke 19, there's this piece, uh, this account of Jesus where he goes into the temple and starts turning tables and getting seemingly angry at what is taking place. And so let's talk a little bit more about the context of what is happening there. This is happening right before the Passover festival. So this was a religious ritual, a tradition for the Jewish people every year. And what this meant was literally everyone was coming to the city. Every Jewish, per Jewish person was coming to the center to celebrate Sukkot, the, the Jewish festival of Passover. So you have people coming from all over, coming to this temple, which if you recall from last week, we talked about this was the place that God dwelled. This was the center of the faith of the Jewish people, but it also had become the economic center of power. And so the question there of like, what was Jesus actually pushing against? Let's keep that in mind, those two facts, that Passover was happening and that this had lost the way in being the sacred space where God's presence was and was becoming the economic center of power. So what we have is we have <clears throat> in the middle of the, the temple, the place where everyone could access, including the Gentiles, who this was the only layer of the temple that people who weren't Jewish could come and experience the presence of God. Well, what was taking place, it had turned into a market. 
And it wasn't just a market. It was a market that was taking advantage of this festival that was happening. And that's actually applicable to us now, too. You know when there's like you know, like a big event happening downtown and all of a sudden the price of parking goes way up because they know they can gouge you. That's essentially what was happening here because you have Jewish people coming from all over who need to buy animals for sac for their sacrifices. They couldn't carry them on their travels. These animals had to be kept blemish-free, injury-free. And so what they do is they would um, sell the animal that they were going to use for sacrifice back in their hometown and use that money to buy one in Jerusalem at the temple and so what was happening was you have these money changers, these money lenders, this system of economic power taking advantage of people that were coming to participate in their religious tradition that connects them with God. And that's what Jesus was pushing against. Jesus came in to say, not only are you, have you turned this place into uh, this place that was meant to be a place of prayer into a den of robbers, what you've done is the one place that Gentiles could come, the one place the people who aren't Jewish could come and participate in the presence of God, you've turned into a den of robbers. And the words that he uses actually come from Isaiah and from Jeremiah that Jesus is quoting. And he said, this place was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so when we talk about Jesus subverting power, he came and he said, let's remember what this place was meant to be. It's a place for my presence to dwell. And not only that, it's for all people which pushed against the hierarchy and the decision of who gets to be in when it comes to religion and access to God and who gets to be out. And so when we kind of summarize it, what's he pushing against? Them missing God's presence. He's pushing against that, reminding them of that. He's pushing against the people in power who have distorted the purpose of the temple. And he's pushing against the fact that they've missed the purpose of the temple. And so for us, this can be true too. And so my question for us is like, uh, have we created a symbol for what the church is meant to be? You know, I think sometimes there's a flat translation of this where we look at this passage and we say, well, the thing we're supposed to learn is we're not supposed to sell sweaters in our church bookshops. And that, that on some level is true, but it's so much more than just saying that we're not meant to ever earn money. Jesus is saying, where have we created barriers for everyone to have access to God? And where have we missed the point of God's presence and in inviting everyone into that? So, so much more than just a critique on the exchange of coins and money yeah, in the temple. Totally. Lots happening there. Talk to us about the righteous right. anger piece. Yeah, the righteous anger piece. And I love that, that question of, so does this, like, was he righteously angry? Jesus was angry. Can we be angry? Yeah, I guess so. Like, that is true. Jesus was entirely riled up and compelled by the way they had distorted the purpose of the kingdom. And so the, the question that often follows and uh, like a correlation that I often hear is like, is it okay to be angry? Well, the Bible says that anger isn't a sin, but what the Bible also says is in your anger, do not sin. Yeah. And so I, I appreciate this question, but what I would caution against is the question saying like, so is, does this give us a right to, to have righteous anger? My, my, yeah, sure. But I think we need to be very careful because sometimes we distort what we would see as righteous our own mandate, our own purpose, our own um, like rally cry, can we be confident that what we're running after is righteous anger? And I think that has been misused over and over and over again, saying, well, this is a righteous anger. I'm entitled to this. And so my encouragement to us is like, at the end of the day, sh sure, Jesus showed righteous anger, but my encouragement to us is to say, ruthlessly pursue the way of Jesus. Be compelled by what Jesus is compelled by, and that will rile up in you at times and move you toward the way of Jesus. And let that be what compels us to follow his way of peace and love. 
Yeah, so we're becoming more like Jesus. That doesn't mean our ability to judge a particular situation is as perfect as his, exactly. which is an important thing to remember as we talk about anger. Great, yeah. we could talk so much more about that. I would love to talk more about, later in Luke, Jesus' discussion about the coin, yeah. what's really happening there, challenging the way we engage with government and politics, but we don't have time. <laughs> talk amongst yourselves later. Okay, question two. Quincy, we're coming at you on this one. It speaks to the mess of Christianity, I think, in a pretty honest way. Again, we've paraphrased, we've grouped together some questions, but here's how we'll read it for today. I hear us preach Jesus is Lord versus legend, as we did earlier in this series. But how do we take him into our workplaces, our families, and to our friends, given Christian history and the reputation of Christians, the judgmentalism, the anti-queer sentiment, the violence, etc.? I know salvation is important, but how do we bring people into the rest of this mess? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question because I think there's a... There's a heart for evangelism that's underneath it. Uh, somebody that wants to get the truth of Jesus out, but we're a mess, uh, hot mess. And um, myself included times, like we, we, look, we look in our world and we look at the history of our church, like the church proper, and say, yeah, there's not a lot of people that look like Jesus, um, myself included um, from time to time. But um, I, I think about, um, the opportunity that we have to be something more. So, so the reputation that I think that Christians can get is we're really good at standing for the things that we disagree with, right? What I'm against. Um, we know we're anti this, we're opposed to that. And um, if we're not careful, I think when we have these conversations, we can actually become those same people that say, well, I'm not like those Christians, right? And make a whole list of excuses on why we're not like that. But instead, I think um, there's, a, there's, a, well, there's a passage in Peter, 1 Peter 3.15. I say this in my home church all the time because I've thought of it as a, an apologetics uh, verse. Always have an answer when people come to you and ask for the hope that you have. And, uh, and I've taken that for years and years to be um, have the right answer. Know your stuff. Mm. Know your theology. Know your dates. Know your facts. But there's something else going on. I think that somebody would actually come and ask the question in the first place shows that there's something questionable about your life. <laughs> so, so actually you have an opportunity, uh, it gives you an opportunity to, to live in a hopeful way, to live in a way that's questionable that would make people kind of come to you. So I think, the, I think yeah, if we can be a little bit more questionable in that sense, uh, and not try and defend or try and uh, dis, uh, discredit or to move ourselves away from others, I think we'll be in a better spot. That's so good. I'm reminded too, there's this tension, isn't there? The call that you're emphasizing that we have to live to be more Christ-like. Yet at the same time, what did Jesus say? He said, who did he come for? He came for the broken. He came for the sick. They need a doctor, right? This is a hospital ward we're in not a museum of righteousness. And so there's real implications to him saying, I'm getting in the mess, that's where my people are, that's who I'm gonna live with, so that's what it's gonna be like, even as I call you to live like me and to conform to my character, but that's a journey. The church it? would be perfect if there were no people involved. Right. Right, yeah. Amen, amen. Amen. <laughs> All right, Jimmy, let's change gears a bit. Let's talk a little bit about history and why that matters. You're a great gift to us in helping us remember that. I'll read from this question. We learn that some of Paul's letters in the New Testament were written quite early and with some parts circulating less than 10 years after Jesus' death. 
Can you explain how we know that and why it matters? It's, it's a big deal. So, um, I mean, Paul's letters, um, which were, they were circular letters. They're almost like well thought through journal entries that he's passing out to the church to, to pastor and care for them in this new way of being, this new way of understanding God, this new way of understanding God's love, this new way of understanding God, God's love, and God's love for humanity and creation. And so Paul is like shepherding this early community, uh, and his letters predate the Gospels. I read one scholar this week that said, likely Paul's letters and his, his history uh, as a Jewish scholar, as a Pharisee from the Pharisaical tradition, legitimized the gospel uh, stories coming out. Here was one of their own that's now essentially defected from uh, ancient Judaism into this new way of being. And so um, Paul's letters provide the earliest evidence that Christianity, or the way, which is what it was called, um, the OG version of it, uh, that, that it took off and changed the world. Now, a few of Paul's letters, like this question gets to, were written um, within a decade or two after Jesus' death and resurrection. So in particular, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians, uh, within 10 to 20 years, we, we don't really know a, a firm date, but it, it's in that zone. And then 1 Corinthians 15, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, which um, if you've read 1 Corinthians 15, what's it about? It's about the resurrection, it's about the resurrection. It's Paul like staking a claim that this is legit. It happened. And then in 15 verse three, he recites this ancient creed that all scholars, literally all New Testament scholars agree, popped up, was popping up in the Roman Empire, the dominant force at the time of Jesus, and was popping up in these early church communities within three years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's what it says. Paul recites it, and this uh, another um, reason that this that, that scholars point to this section of scripture is it doesn't follow um, Paul's normal communicative m message. It's not Paul interpreting a creed, it's him reciting a creed in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 with in three years, so, so again, this is popping up within three years of Jesus' death and resurrection, so, so early in antiquity. Here's what it says. Jesus died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, dead. He was raised on the third day and that he appeared. Died, uh, buried, was resurrected, and then appeared. Died, buried, resurrected, appeared to Cephas and then the 12. And so like I said, this, this, this starts going like wildfire in the Roman um, Empire. Now, why is this important? It's important because it shows that this is not rumor. This is not rumor, this is not hagiography or an exaggeration of, of historical events. You have um, a, an account, a creed that's popping up when it could have been very easily fact-checked. Paul heard of and persecuted the way. Remember, Saul of Tarsus, which is Paul's former name, before he's converted to the way of Jesus. He is persecuting and pushing against, as a scholar, as an educated person, these people. And then he has an experience, a witness, an apostolic vision to the resurrected Christ. He learned the teachings of Jesus from Peter and from James, which is fascinating. 
Paul uh, is so changed in his um, interior theology that he goes back to the very people who are far less educated and experienced than he is and submits himself to learn the teaching of Jesus from Peter and James. He knew it was not rumor based on these accounts and he joined the earliest Christians subverting the empire by saying that Jesus is Lord. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was resurrected and then he appeared and he appeared to me, which is if you continue to verse four, Paul gives his own version of his own experience of uh, as being a witness of the resurrected Christ. And so uh, Paul stakes his life on this. He stakes his life on it so much so that a couple of de- decades later, which is um, what we read in first Corinthians, he's writing to uh, in the fifties, he's writing to this early Christian church and he is reciting this creed still. And what is it simply? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not Artemis, not Diana, not Zeus, not Caesar, but Jesus. Jesus is Lord. It's fascinating ancient history uh, that, that, that was being fact-checked all the time and that pointed um, these early Christ followers in a certain direction, even being willing to die for their own faith because they knew that love had taken over the world in the person of Jesus. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. Yeah, when we talk about history, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis and Screwtape Letters portraying Satan as saying, hey, if we can get them to believe this stuff for any reason, reason other than because it's true, we've done won. our job. Yeah. The truth matters. Yeah, absolutely. We have to reckon with that, right? It's awesome. Can you give us a quick follow-up on a comment that you made about the New Testament and its language of origin? So we have a question on that. It starts with Jimmy said, so you're going to have to answer it. Jimmy said the Gospels were written in a certain way and translated into Greek. Is there some evidence they were originally written in another language? So a quick one on this, 30 seconds, then we'll move on. Really quick. Yeah, so um, the the original language of Jesus was not Greek. So uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic, likely Hebrew, maybe Greek, but most assuredly he spoke Aramaic. And there's a couple Gospel accounts uh, and Mark... um, five and six, where Jesus, uh, if you look in your Bible, it includes the Aramaic phrasing, Talitha Kuam. So so Jesus spoke the language of his culture uh, and day. Um, And yet the gospels are translated into koinonia or common Greek. Now this is an incredible moment in history where the, the, the reproduction, recitation of language, of a common language is starting to take off. And so really for the first time in ancient history, people are, are coming together with like one language, is one common language. It'd be like today, Spanish or English is like, okay, um, kind of a base setting for understanding how to communicate. And so the gospels are translated into Greek. So then how how did they get from uh, Aramaic and Hebrew into Greek, common Greek, and why? Um, so Jesus was part, uh, he's a rabbi, right? He's a teacher. Um, and he had disciples who spent every, this is going to be longer than 30 seconds, I'm really sorry. <laughs> We're way past. Yeah. We'll leave it there. There, I answered it. That's good. Um, Jesus was a, ra- I'm going to talk really fast. If anything's unclear, grab me in the hallway. Okay. He was, a, he was a rabbi, a teacher, and he had disciples who spent every waking minute with him asking, seeking, knocking. 
asking, seeking, knocking, memorizing, memorizing and reciting. Remember, as a young Jewish boy or girl, you would have the majority of the Torah memorized, committed to memory, because this was part of the holy tradition of oral translation and transmission. And so um, as a disciple, you were following Jesus along and you were memorizing his, his teachings, asking, seeking, knocking, clarifying. And this is why Jesus asked so many questions of his disciples. Secondly, the gospels arose in a Jewish culture where there was the utmost reverence and respect for the holy tradition of oral transmission. It is the way you were taught to learn, and it was the way that you learned and would eventually teach, listening, reading, memorizing, rinse, and repeat. Also, this legitimizes the role of the, the apostolic, the disciples' authority, that, that not only did they learn these things from Jesus, but they were an eyewitness. They learned it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. They learned it right from him and recited it back. And so the disciples memorized uh, sections of Jesus' teaching. And then the way that they handled it, and Paul refers to this as well, is they delivered it as it was passed on to me. I give to you the way that I received it. Again, these terms are the ones used in Jewish oral tradition to describe and preserve the way that tradition was passed on. And so the early disciples of Jesus wrote down some of Jesus' sayings and deeds. They memorized a huge chunk of his teaching, which is normative in the culture. Um, and then they, they passed it on with accuracy, adding to their own experiences and interpretation of events, which is why you see some um, differences in the gospel accounts. Um, then eventually these biographies were recorded, I would say legitimized by Paul, and then recorded and then translated into common Greek so that the message could get, get out as quickly as possible and to as many people as possible because everybody needs to hear that Jesus is Lord. There, that's 30 seconds. <laughs> roughly, yeah, roughly, Here open to interpretation. So from... Paul and the early church to Jesus himself. We've heard a little bit about the historicity of how he was portrayed, the earliest creeds, et cetera. Quincy, let's talk a little bit about, so what does Jesus actually say about himself? If I'm investigating this guy, I probably want to understand, okay, other people wrote about him, but what did he have to say about himself? So that's, I think, at the heart of this question. Jesus never actually refers to himself, or does he? he does. As the son of God or as the Messiah. He implies it, he lets other people say it, but he doesn't directly declare it himself, or does he? So why not, or why, and what's the significance of this? Yeah, yeah, I, I like that question. I think it's, it's touching on a little bit of uh, Jesus' coyness, I guess, when he's presented with um, situations and he says, uh, don't tell anybody, you know, he tries to keep it a secret. But, but there are times when he's explicit about who he is and why he came, so. Um, Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Uh, when Jesus is uh, before the Sanhedrin and uh, he's, got, he's now got an opportunity to be set free um, if he so chooses and they're questioning him. And uh, the high priest, this is uh, Mark 14 uh, verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained, remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Verse 62, you ready? <laughs> I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. <laughs> the high priest tore his clothes, why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. So, so I guess the, 
the whole reason why he was crucified eventually was because of that statement, the weight that it held. So he was very clear um, when it really mattered, when he was asked point blank, what's going on? And, um, and another, another thing to note is uh, after his resurrection, you see an interaction with him and, and uh, Thomas. Hmm. And, uh, and Jesus, uh, Thomas's response to him is, my Lord, my God. And if you look throughout all of scripture, anytime a prophet or an angel would have been receiving worship from somebody else, if they knew God, they were always really quick to correct them and say, don't worship me. That's only for God. And in Jesus, in these moments, he doesn't rebuke them. He, re he receives the worship. He takes it. So that's an indication. Either he's, he's, he's uh, completely out of his mind or he's actually who he says he is. Beautiful. We can look to the religious leaders too, who obviously thought that's what he was declaring because they wanted to kill him. And they said that as he calls himself the son of this father, as he refers to God as his father, he's essentially declaring himself equal with God. Yeah. Hey, wait a second, we can't have that. So there's another indication of what he was clearly suggesting and saying in his words to the people around and him. And the high priest tears his robe, which was a signal of blasphemy. It was like a, it was a religious response of like, you can't say that. And then they beat him up. So it's not just like, hey, that's nuanced. Can you be a little more gentle? They're like, oh no, there it is. Yep, done. Undisputed. Good, love it. Carmen, let's end here, taking us right back to this concept of being Jesus-centered. So you spoke a few weeks ago about Jesus centricity, the implications for that for a number of things, including how we read scripture. So here's the question. Isn't the concept of being Jesus centered rather than Bible centered a bit dangerous and misleading? Does it mean that most of the Bible isn't valid? And don't we need the Bible to learn about Jesus? Yeah, those are so, such good questions. And I got a lot of those. These actually come not from this specific series, but the one we, we did. Previous prior, uh, just for context of where we find ourselves. But it's been a great fall together as a church of like leaning into Jesus on all kinds of levels. And so we talked about what it means to be Jesus centered and that I did say from the stage that we follow Jesus, not the Bible. And so these questions are fair and they do, they are like, whoa, 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 let's talk about that a little bit. And so what does that mean? What does that mean for our relationships with scripture when we say that we're Jesus centered? Being Jesus centered and being followers of Jesus means that we follow the way, the words and the life of Jesus first and foremost. But it also means that one of the most deepest and richest and most accessible ways we have to come to know the way of Jesus is through scripture. And so hear me say that scripture absolutely is, is a part of our faith tradition, is a part and should be a vibrant part of our discipleship journey and the way that we uh, come to be, become more and more like Jesus. But the Bible is one of the best ways we have to learn the way and the words of Jesus. But it, it isn't central the way that Jesus is. We look first and foremost to the way of Jesus and the words of Jesus. As a reminder, or maybe it's a new learning for you, this doesn't invalidate the Bible, but it may mean we need to recalibrate our understanding of the Bible. The scriptures, the Bible is one big story. It's one big narrative that culminates the climax of the entire story is Jesus. And so what this does is it brings a richness to scripture. It brings a richness to every word from the very first word in Genesis, all the way through to the end, all of it is culminating in the story of God's people and in the journey that they have towards their relationship with God. And it highlights their relationship with God, the brokenness they have, the sin they have, and the ever resounding message of hope and longing for the one that is to come. And that is Jesus. Putting Jesus at the center means that we find a way, it helps us right-size the scriptures to know that they're all looking to Jesus. We happen to live in the 21st century. We're a very individualized Western society. And so 
we tend to engage with scripture in a way that says, okay, well, what does this mean specifically for me? What do these words in Ezekiel 25, I don't, I'm just picking, this is just hypothetical. What do they mean for me? And a better question to ask, that's a fair question, but a better question to ask is what is this, what part of the entire story of scripture does this play? And what does this teach me about Jesus? And a good follow-up is to say, God, what do you have for me in this? What are you teaching me? But the words, of Je- the words of the Bible belong to an entire narrative that culminates and points to a life of Jesus. And the Bible says as much too. Jesus comes in Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. The law, their Torah, their words, their scripture. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to invalidate the Bible. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to invalidate the law. I came to fulfill it. And that is true. Jesus is the culmination of scripture. And so it is very important to our faith. Never hear us say that, oh, we don't need that. It's one of the best ways we come to know and learn about the life and the way and the words of Jesus. So good. As we round this out, I'm just reminded of something, I think it was you who said this, Quincy, in a few weeks ago. This is the meat. Talking about, learning more about, becoming more like Jesus isn't a stepping stone to Christianity 2.0. It's not the appetizer to some main course that's waiting on the other side of once we have Jesus figured out. That's been a reminder for me over these past few weeks. This is the depth of our faith, is getting as close to and becoming as much like Jesus as possible, and it starts with the things we've been talking about. So what's the invitation, though, Jimmy? What is Jesus asking of us as we close our morning out together? Yeah, um, let's go to the words of Jesus, actually. So if we can get um, uh, John 13 um, up, we'll read it together. Uh, we'll skip that one. I still don't understand Luke 22. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. You can come and talk to me after about that. But let's actually go to the uh, section of scripture, if you guys can throw that up here. Coming. Coming. There it is. A new command. So now, it's the words of Jesus. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So this section of scripture, uh, Jesus is at his last meal with his early followers, with his disciples, these apostles, who will later all give their lives for this Uh, way of being, this way of understanding God, this way of understanding God's love. But for now, they're sitting at a last meal, the Passover meal, which has all sorts of symbolism for like, oh, God helped us in the Exodus. God provided for us, and God wants to remind us of where we've come from and God's provision for us now. And then the Son of God, the God made flesh is sitting with them and serving them a meal. He's also just washed their feet to give them the picture of like, what does this way look like? He's washed their feet and now he's serving them a meal. And then he introduces um, new symbolism, the the body and the blood. Uh, um, And then something fascinating happens. Um, He talks about a new command. Now again, whose lips could that only come from? God, who gives commands? God does. Who interprets commands? God does. So Jesus is sitting with his early disciples. Uh, He's sharing a last meal. And also there's a betrayal. There's a couple betrayals that are about to happen. Jesus is gonna be killed by the very system that he came to vindicate and reorient. Uh, Jesus is gonna be betrayed by basically the founder of the church, Peter, soon. He's gonna be um, denied. And then he's going to be sold out and betrayed by Judas, one of his 12. 
So you want to talk about a broken body of believers. It's right here sitting around the table with Jesus. And you would expect uh, with his impending death and suffering looming over this meal that Jesus, or even I, if I'm sitting there, I'd probably be ticked off. I'd be like, you guys haven't got this. Like, ah, remember, here's what you're just supposed to do. We're, we're, we're meant to be an unstoppable force of good in the world. Like, how dare you? Why didn't you? How can we? Blah, 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 blah. And instead, um, Jesus gives a truth, a command, and a result. A truth, a command, and a result. Jesus' final instructions to his disciples, which we would call ourselves apprentices, followers of Jesus. He gives these final instructions. A truth, I love you. I have always loved you. I will always love you. A command. So love each other. Just as I have loved you, love each other. And a result. This will be the proof that the world needs to see and learn that God is love and that living any other way nullifies the whole thing. You are the living text that will show people that God is who he says he is or that religion just continues to take over. You are the proof that the world needs to see and learn that God is love and that living any other way nullifies the whole thing. He's giving his disciples and to us today these instructions that if we hate each other, it's the wrong picture of God. That if we serve only ourselves, it's the wrong picture of God. If we keep to ourselves, if we exclude and ignore others, it's the wrong picture of God. If we prop up systems of power and politics that harm and hinder others, it's the wrong picture of God. And if we don't, as disciples of Jesus today, today at the meeting house, if we don't embody and share this love with others, we have the wrong picture of God. And so brothers and sisters, what is the right picture of God? Who does God love? You. Who does God invite into relationship, promise, covenant, intimacy with him. You. And who does God intend that we share this with and live it out? You. Brothers and sisters, wherever we are at, whether investigating faith, maybe that's a question for you right now. And we want to extend an invitation from the mouth of Jesus that God loves you, that God has always loved you, and God will always love you. That God invites you not to just internalize that as a personal philosophy, like Carmen said, but to share it, to live this way, to share it with others, to love each other just like Jesus loves us, and that this will be the proof. This will be the better invitation than any great sermon or any great answer to a question. The proof is in the pudding. How are you a walking billboard for Jesus every day of your life? 
So maybe you need to hear this again. Who does God love? You. Who does God invite into relationship with himself? You. Who does God want to share this message through? You, me, us. May we be a church who navigates questions together. May we be a church who, who leans into pain and suffering, correction, rebuke. But may we be a church that exemplifies the love of God made perfect in Jesus. And may we be walking billboards of the love of God that lives within us. Amen? Jesus, we pray that you would give us the courage, the inspiration, and the grace to love you, to commit to you, to be disciples of you, to learn from you, and to love like you. In those areas of our lives where we need to repent and turn the other way, convict us, come beside us. In those areas of life where we've ignored people who are hurting, forgive us, convict us, walk beside us. In those areas of life where we've felt that own sense of uh, dread of insecurity of doubt. May we be reminded that Jesus, you love us, that you have always loved us and that you will always love us and you continue to invite us into relationship, covenant, promise, intimacy with yourself. And Jesus, may the world know that we are Christ followers by the love that we show and share. In Jesus' name and together we all said, amen. amen.